Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Christina Quarles. She's included in the Hammer Museum's Made in LA 2018 Biennial. It was curated by Anne Elgood and Aaron Cristobal, and it's on view through September 2nd. Quarles' work typically includes recognizable elements, such as figures, flowers, or tables, that dissolve into each other in ways that confuse our ideas of gender, race, and space. On her website, Quarles describes this blending of elements as rooted to her own personal history, quote, The contradiction of my black ancestry coupled with my fair skin results in my place always being my displace. Next month, Quarles will be the subject of a Matrix exhibition at the Berkeley Art Museum. She's been included in group shows at the New Museum, the Studio Museum in Harlem, Lax Art, and at the Santa Monica Museum of Art, which is now called ICALA. On the second segment, Morgan Library curator Joel Smith joins me to discuss his Peter Hujar Speed of Life, which is now at the Berkeley Art Museum. But first, Christina Quarles, after a break. The Kimball Art Museum presents From the Lands of Asia, the Salmon Myrna Myers Collection. Discover exotic costumes and customs, an ocean of treasured porcelain, transcendent Buddhist icons, and the magical allure of jade. Journey through the legendary lands of Asia on view at the Kimball Art Museum through August 19th. Plan your visit at KimballArt.org. Constantine Brancusi Sculpture is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. The exhibition features 11 of Brancusi's sculptures together for the first time, a selection of drawings and photographs, and a rich collection of archival material chronicling his work and relationships with his sitters, patrons, and the Museum of Modern Art. Get more info and tickets at moma.org and plan your visit today. Combo Chimbita delivers a delicious mix of cumbia, salsa, reggae, 1970s funana from Cape Verde, and compa from Haiti. Hear this New York-based band on Saturday, August 25th at 6 p.m. as part of Off the 405, a free summer concert series bringing today's most exciting bands to the Getty for an evening of live music amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Christina Quarles, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. The female nude has been around in European painting, at least, for 500 years, and it's typically a subject that interests men. You're a woman. It's 2018. It's got a big, fraught history. Why and how did it become fundamental to your work? Well, I guess it really started back when I was a kid. So I, I grew up in Los Angeles, and... My mom was a single working mom, so I was often kind of being shuffled around between various daycare situations. And the one that I preferred over going to like YMCA summer camp was going to Barnsdale Junior Art Park, where I could take art classes instead of having to just be watched by mean teenagers. I should add, I should, I should jump in and say that this is in Los Angeles, of course. This, oh, yes, this is in Los Angeles, yeah. But I'm sure there's mean teenagers at YMCA's all over the country. But I, I, it was, it was strange. It was like some, I can't even recall quite what it was, but there was some sort of clerical error where when I was 12, I was put into the adult figure drawing class instead of like the kids, like pottery class or whatever I was supposed to be taking at the time. So I was able to work with a nude model and it was kind of this like 
moment where everyone was like, are we all sure that we're okay with this like 12 year old working with like nude male and female models? And like, everyone was okay with it. And I was definitely like, I was very dedicated to art even at that age. So I was like, really excited to be able to work with a live model. And so I started working there and really, I mean, it was just working from the figure was a much more interesting observational subject than like drawing trees, which I always hated drawing trees in class or any sort of inanimate object. I just loved drawing the figure because it was something that I could kind of feel my own body as I was drawing the figure, but it was also something that was in front of me. So it required total concentration and observation and and required me to look at things and kind of like readjust my assumptions of what I would think I would draw based on what I was actually looking at and kind of check what I was looking at versus what I would have assumed the the body would look like. So it started from an early age, just drawing the figure. And then from there, I mean, continuing to take figure drawing classes, even to this day, I find that it's just a subject that continues to resonate with me because it's something that I'm so familiar with. I can really kind of bend and play with it. And then also, I mean, for me, the interest of, I guess, I mean, for me, it's something that starts off with my interest in a lot of identity politics and queer theory and race theory and and all of those things that kind of motivate my interest in making art that I find working with the figure to be an especially resonant, but also highly problematic subject matter to use to tackle issues of identity. And so I, I, I'm interested in the challenges in it. You mentioned figure drawing classes. Do you work from, do you paint from the figure or, or not at all? No, I, I really work from, I work from a memory of working with the figure. So I'll continue to take figure drawing classes to sort of build up a, an arsenal, I guess, of, of information that I can pull from. And I'll sort of pick and choose from different past observational experiences to create a sort of amalgamation of a figure. But I, I don't work from a model or even from sketches when I start a painting. I really work from, from gesture and I really start much more abstract than with a solid laying out of a composition or of a form. And then I, I do a lot of responding with step, stepping back and looking at what I've laid down on the canvas. We, we could talk about only the figures in your paintings probably for hours, but for the purposes of of now, there are two things I'd like to talk about. First is the impossible malleability of your figures. You, you, you often paint extended legs and arms that bend and contour and reach in ways that would be impossible for a human to do, but that do have art historical precedent for me, perhaps because I'm a Matissean. I think of what Matisse does to the figure in, in the 1950s and the cutouts, where he bends them in a way that flattens space and fits figures into rectangles and how often how that often requires the limbs to be impossibly long why are your figures so malleable and sometimes elongated in a way that also vaguely recalls mannerism for that matter yeah i mean i i'm really fascinated by i guess the all the confines of a frame or of a boundary or an edge so 
for me, that can be the edge of the body or the edge of a contour line, but also very much so like the edge of the canvas itself. And so I'll constantly change like the size of the canvas or the dimensions or even the profile of the canvas. And then it's really just a matter of playing around with gestural forms at the beginning that then become bodies and having things fit into the frame. Like I love the idea of some figure being depicted that could never actually stand up because they're so they're really determined by the edge of the frame. And so it's their whole body fits in there, but they couldn't actually stand up comfortably in the picture. Or, or really structurally in terms of how you make their bodies. I mean, they just wouldn't have the bone structure to do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But still playing with the sort of fundamentals of kind of figure drawing 101 to still give them a sense of gravity and weight and substance that seems like it follows some sort of logic that we're familiar with, but then also bends those, those rules and expectations so that we can, I don't know. I, I, I'm very interested in painting what it feels like to be in a body rather than what it feels like to look at somebody else's body. And so I think often we can feel parts of our body more prominently than other parts or, it, you can feel kind of something moving in space, but then completely forget about like your hip or something like that. So, so that's more what I'm thinking of when I'm constructing the figures in the image. And then I also, they tend to interact with multiple body parts. So sometimes that'll coalesce and be something that could be read as multiple figures and other times it could be a single figure sort of moving through time and space and getting elongated or scrunched up depending on where they've been <laughs> in, in time and space in the piece. So yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just trying to really express the feel of being within the boundaries of a body and then having that also living within the boundaries of the frame itself and then also the boundaries of a whole history of painting and the figure, which is another set of confines that these images exist within. So in almost all of your figures, not all, but almost all, you refuse to use conventional flesh tones, whether that's conventionally white flesh tones or conventionally non-white flesh tones. So you use uh, lots of grays, lots of primary colors, sometimes some purple, sometimes some orange. How did you come to the colors you use for for skin and flesh in in your paintings? Well, again, it kind of goes back to that idea that these are portraits of being an individual rather than portraits of an individual. So, or portraits of looking at a body. They're more portraits of being within a body and looking out into the world. So, but how does that get you to a purple stomach? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I guess so the very the the first color I sort of came up with was that that gray color. So that was like several years ago I was primarily only using that gray color and it was because I wanted to key a sort of middle color between the the light of the canvas and a uh, mixed black that I was using. And it was because I really saw these figures as existing solely within the materiality and the limitations of 
the painting itself. And so it seemed like the, the ground of the campus was a logical place to sort of build up the world of their flesh, since their flesh world would be of the painting world and not of our world per se. And really the the colors that have all come from there, like these, these sort of bright primaries, lots of oranges and sort of pinks, they're all just colors that do tend to interact with the raw canvas itself. So it'll be many transparent layers laid on top of one another, but still with that sort of yellowy canvas coming through. And I'll often, not often, but I occasionally had people ask why the figures all seem to be white, even though, like as a Caucasian, even though it, it happens, it happens occasionally. And I think that it's, it's probably because there is sort of a, I don't know, I think the, the ground of the canvas can be sort of read as like a white skin tone, more so than it would be read as a black skin tone, for example. But I find that really interesting too, like how how these sort of seemingly neutral or given materials could lean towards whiteness or or not. And for me, I mean, since I've also had people question why why have the figures be these colors if something that interests me is is race so like a big a big kind of personal drive behind the work is trying to express sort of my my sort of figuring out of my own racial identity as somebody who is half black dad's black and my mom's white but i'm very visibly read as white especially by white people so for me my experience of race and my experience of being a person of color is both completely defined by my skin color and also completely defined by the contradiction of that skin color. So it would be it would be pretty false for me to use like pigmented like black skin color to depict my experience of blackness because that's not my experience of blackness, which isn't to say that it's not important to it, but for me it's more about sort of expressing the the form and the substance of the feel and the weight of a body and how that is being depicted in the feel and the weight of painting materials rather than actually being able to legibly read the bodies as specific races that we would see in our daily lives. One of the interesting things about how you paint skin and bodies, how you lay paint down on the canvas that stands in for skin and bodies, is that it seems to be loaded with references to art histories that that you're kind of upending. Often your bodies are built with these kind of layers of flat color field recalling color and how color field painters got paint onto their canvases. And of course, when we think of that group I mean, nothing could be, I mean, almost nothing could be whiter and male. And and there's also a little bit of fauvism there. I mean, it's hard not to think of fauvism when, you know, you have purple stomachs and green hips in, in, in the paintings. Are those art histories you were conscious of engaging and subverting? I would say that just by virtue of the fact that I'm consciously making paintings and including nude figures, I'm definitely engaged with 
art history as a whole and especially Western art history and the knowledge that that has been largely dominated by white straight male actors in it. So I, I have that in the back of my head and I, I do find that the sort of the language within painting that we take for granted, or at least that like a lay person would see as just sort of a natural state of genius or something that is either good or bad and that, that it doesn't have, that it's somehow divorced from this long history and language and rules and these things that are very much constructed to be right and wrong and different taste levels and all these histories that I, I mean, somebody like my mom would say like, Oh, well art is so it's just very subjective. And I'm like, well, yeah, kind of, but it's also like very much based on these sort of written out rules that have been constructed and perfected over history. And so I'm aware, I guess, of the art history that having a painting of of nudes or then having like a purple stomach or a green hip would would have for certain viewers and on a more conscious level and would have for other viewers on a much more subconscious or on a level that maybe they're not fully articulately aware of. And that's something that I find is like a really interesting parallel to my project as far as trying to pick apart what it is to be in a body and have an identity that can, on the one hand, be internalized as something that's just sort of like a given or a natural state, but on the other hand, is something that's very much crafted with a history and with a sort of social construction and context over time. Speaking of identity, you almost entirely don't do faces, even in parts of a canvas or parts of a body that, that signify this is where a face would be. I'm thinking of paintings like 2017's Double Down, where it's almost like the, the, the face has been smeared away. I'm, I'm guessing that's a conscious decision, and why? Yeah, I definitely do make that a conscious decision in almost all the work, so I try to even contradict that in occasional pieces. But I tend to focus more on the hands and the feet as moments for expression or gesture rather than the face. I think that we we really privilege the face when we're looking at another person, but I find it really interesting the way that even though that's kind of the first thing we notice about another person is their face, we really have a very minimal understanding of our own face. So like, I mean, I really, I only know my face when I see it mediated by a mirror or by photography or video. So it's, it's always reversed or it's not in real time. And it's, it's something that's quite foreign to me. Like I, I know my wife's face way better than I know my own face, but my hands and my feet, I do experience in real time. And I experience them interacting with the world and I experience them in the round. Like they aren't just flattened images, but they're fully realized three-dimensional things that are extensions of myself that can interact with the world. So in making these sort of portraits of living within a body, it would make sense to me that then the feet and the hands would be kind of the most articulated expressions of that body. And the face would sort of be this vague sort of stand in that maybe like, and the hair, the hair is usually not usually, but it's often 
very much articulated as well and is becoming more and more articulated as I move through this body of work. And, but the hair, I mean, hair is something that is kind of like something you can fuss over and put on and sort of present yourself with and are still somehow more aware of than, than your face at any given moment. And in a painting, it signifies where the face would be when the rest of, or much of the rest of a figure is abstract enough for it not to be clear where the face is by putting hair there you're pinning it down yeah exactly it's sort of this frame for this idea of a face because I, I mean we do we're aware that we have faces but it's sort of this vague recollection of what it looks like or does at any given moment it's sort of horrifying when you see yourself like in a photograph like oh god is that what i was doing that day like but the rest of your body you can actually see in real time I'm glad you mentioned hands. Throughout art history, hands, of course, are famously difficult and famously problematic for painters. Did you have to think through that difficulty? And were there particular painters whose hands you found yourself gravitating toward, if you will? Well, when you say difficulty, do you mean like because they're literally just hard to draw? <laughs> yep. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. I I guess this also goes back to like when I was a kid, I... Cans are really intimidating to draw when you're a little kid and taking like your first drawing class. So I, and like, you know, you always like see drawings where like people have just put the hands like behind the back or like in pockets, which is always like a funny way of avoiding that. But I always like to kind of tackle those problems head on. So I, yeah, I guess I just, that's part of why they have become so expressive and bendy and play so much with the form of a hand is because just ever since I was a little kid, I was like, all right, got to sit down and figure out how to do this because these are going to be the, this is going to be the challenge. But yeah, so I really just kind of practiced developing a, a whole language and a whole shorthand for how to depict these crazy appendages on our bodies. It's darn near the only thing across many of your paintings that is outlined in black. I mean, you really call our attention to them. Yeah, I mean, I really, and because they are these sort of, uh, with having an interest in the edge or the boundary of one's own self and the environment world that we live in and how that's constantly being more or less solidified and then going back into dissolving into our surroundings. It's like the the hands and the feet are these, these outermost boundaries of the selves. It's where we really start to like, it's where we become like our most split into these like five little very precise appendages. And so that's, I guess, where I would see like the border being the most defined. Your paintings feel to me like they're very, like the space in them is very domestically scaled. Often there are references to domestic space within the paintings, but even when you include a sky or clouds, they, the sky or clouds read more as kind of a Hollywood backdrop or a reference to like a Georgia O'Keeffe at the Art Institute of Chicago sky. Do you think of these as being domestic, primarily domestic scenes? I really, I, I work with pattern the way that I used to work with text. So I used to incorporate text and language directly into the canvas. And I guess in the hammer, the piece that that's at the hammer uh, made in LA show, there's text woven into 
the pattern, but it's separate from the the frame of the canvas. So I what I really liked about including text in a piece was that it was this very flat plane of information that referenced something that was not present in the piece. But I found that including text was a little too much of a misdirect because we have a tendency to want to read when we see text and image side by side, we want the text to be a sort of explanation or one-to-one relationship with the image. And that's never how I saw it. So it felt like it was like a cruel (laughs) misdirect for the viewer. So when I removed the text, that's when I started really playing more with these, with these patterns and these planes that were interacting with the figures. And I really, I found that there was the same with using visual language, there is the same potential for having this sort of double speak or double meaning, the way that a word can shift meaning depending on context or depending on the exact spelling. Like the word, like a lot of my pieces are titled with the word morning, spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And just like the interest in that sort of subtle shift I found could also happen with with patterns, and I, I I look for patterns that can like I love using flower motifs, and I love that they can. That's, that's another of, reason the paintings read as domestic as flowers and vases. Yeah, exactly. But I, I it initially like the very first time I used a sort of pattern plane that bisected the figures, I used this sort of simplified daisy pattern, and I loved it because it sort of read as this very like generic kind of. 70s or like mid 20th century domestic bedspread or tablecloth but then it also because of how it was interacting with the figures could kind of move in between being a solid and a liquid and as soon as it became a liquid it was like well maybe they're they're flowers that fell on a lake and the bodies are in a pond or maybe they're like in a field so I, I like these these images that can be both a controlled manufactured pattern and then and then become in the domestic sphere or they can exist kind of as this infinite external landscape sort of image but having it still lean more towards I mean especially with the paint application being so kind of plasticky having it lean more towards the realm of manufactured domestic space but that kind of simultaneous read of being both an exterior and an interior space, I find to be a, a helpful way of talking about the body. So these patterns you're mentioning are often painted as planes that the figures in your paintings intersect. To me, read as pretty specific art historical references. There's a red and white plaid that seems borrowed from a Bonard tabletop. There are floral patterns which read both as bed sheets or or wallpaper or area rugs, but also read as you know Kim McConnell and Southern California pattern and decoration painting. Are those art historical associations you are intentionally making, or am I being a painting nerd and finding them? <laughs> I mean, with those two, I think it's it's being, they're being lifted from many different sources. And I think even if they're being lifted from advertising or from pop culture, I mean, those usually have art historical roots as well because the people that are responsible for propelling things in pop culture and advertising. But 
I mean, sometimes I make a real direct, like, I mean, I love the idea, again, going back to this, this origin point of language of sort of quoting and misquoting things, I think is an interesting starting off point. So sometimes, I mean, there's a piece, it's called like Summertime, Sunday, 9th of July. So that piece has like an exact ripoff of a David Hockney pool pattern on it. Or then there was like the reference you were making also to the George O'Keefe that's at the Art Institute of Chicago. That was like very much what I was thinking of when I made those cloud patterns. And so I think that the same way that I would, you know, drive down the street and see a ficus tree that I, that I thought was pruned in a really interesting way and will incorporate that into a painting. It'll be the same if I'm leafing through an art history book and see a David Hockney pool that I think is something that'd be interesting to incorporate into a painting. So I don't really, I I don't really limit sort of the high or the low (laughs) as far as what I'll pull from to bring into the work. Those planes, whether it's the red and white checkerboard or, or the floral planes, read as references to the decorative. And I think for the second time, I could be wrong on the number of times, you have done an installation at the Hammer that is a painting installation on an entire massive wall. And, and the two painting installations of yours I've seen, one in person and one in JPEG, are full of references to the decorative in these spaces where the decorative space elides into the painting and the painting elides into the decorative space. Why is that intersection of, of say, an art historical standard like, like the female nude and kind of a more 20th century, at least in American context, decorative space? Why is that elision or interstitial space interesting to you? Huh, I don't know. I, I, I do tend to incorporate the two and I'm not, I haven't actually really articulated fully why that is, though it's certainly present throughout the work. I mean, I, I guess one of the things that motivated those installations, well, I was really fascinated with both of the installations that you're referring to with creating an entire environment where I could, I could create these sort of trump edges frame and then exceed or contain the figures within the frame and not be limited by the physical edge of a canvas. But because they were just painted edges, I could actually have parts where the figures could spill out or have their their confine within the frame be even more underscored by the fact that it was just a completely false boundary or an arbitrary boundary. So that was really what motivated me to do both of those projects, more so than the drive to make an interior space, though I am interested in sort of this, I guess, continual defining and self-defining relationship that you have with your own sense of self, how that's constantly being defined for you by other people. And then you're kind of taking that and reformatting how you see yourself and how you can make yourself in the world. So I guess in that sense, maybe like an interior space that's completely controlled by me. So like I'm making the the wallpaper and the edge of the frame. And I don't know, I mean, I always like the idea of like a painting being permanently hung too low or hung too high and kind of having there be nothing you could do about it because the painting took up the entire wall. The O'Keefe Art Institute of Chicago thing again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know, but I, I really, yeah, I haven't fully articulated 
quite what motivates me to do that. I find that it's as an artist, it's helpful to kind of go back and forth between having a really clear sense of why you do something and then other times just going with why you want to do something and refer back to it later and think about why it was important to you. So that's one of the instances where I haven't actually fully figured it out yet. You mentioned Hockney, David Hockney, a moment ago, and I, I, before moving on to a couple other things, I don't want to let Hockney drop. I, to me, it looks like Hockney is really important, both in terms of how you paint figures, everything from kind of colors to gradation of colors to malleable body positions, but also to the relationship between the figures and empty canvas, empty space, naked canvas around the figures. You know, I'm not talking about late Hockney. I'm talking about really early Hockney, like like R.A. RA Hockney. Why, what about early Hockney and how he does figures worked for you? Well, I mean, I was definitely influenced by early Hockney from an early age, living so close to the LA County Museum of Art. There was, yeah, they had a bunch of Hockneys there that I would look at a lot as a kid and was really fascinated by. And I think it's just that sort of, well, I guess I'm I'm much more interested in how he adds in these different observational symbols from just from daily life and from kind of his, I guess those early pieces, because he wasn't even living in LA at the time of those early pieces, he right? Was in, he was in London, but he was certainly looking at American magazines. Yeah, that's what I really liked about them was this idea like that he was kind of painting this fantasy of what like living in LA would be like, and LA kind of is a fantasy of living in LA. And so he, when he moved out here, it was kind of, similar iconography, even though it was probably from more direct observation rather than just from looking at magazines. So yeah, I just, the, the, the sense I get with his work is that it's, it's much more of like an idea of a space or an idea of a, of a narrative rather than actually that space or that narrative. And I just always have loved his paintings. It's kind of been more from like a pre-verbal point than just a love of the paintings. I think we've mentioned flowers a couple times without talking about them. They're definitely not in every painting, but they're in a lot of paintings. And they're very obviously flowers, and they're almost always very obviously in a vase. So I have two questions about how and why you, you do flowers. First one is why flowers? What do they do for you? What do they do for you in a painting? I mean, I guess that's kind of that unarticulated decorative idea that I'm just kind of running with, but not fully not fully bogging down with my own explanation or language behind it. But I do find that they, in a similar way to the patterns, I mean, the patterns often do incorporate flowers, but the way that the patterns can kind of sort of natural occurrence and this very manufactured, controlled interior domestic pattern, I mean, the same would be said of like a, of a floral arrangement in that it's, something that's supposed to evoke this idea of natural beauty, but it's very controlled and regulated. And, you know, like putting flowers in a vase is very similar to a framing device. It's just a different, it's not like literally four edges, but it is still like a framing and arranging of something that in theory is natural, but is completely manufactured and artificial. So, and the way that I, I paint flowers is in a very different way from how I would paint the figure. Different colors too. Yeah, it's different colors. It's usually like 
it's usually a masked area, so it's not gestural. I mean, it it has its origin in like a gestural cut line, but then it's controlled with the way that the edge is defined by being just a solid layer of highly highly kind of plasticky paint in very plasticky color choices. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just kind of, again, to sort of play with this sort of double meaning of what is like, what is like a so-called natural thing versus what is like a constructed or manufactured thing in relation to the body or being a person going through various social situations. The, the flowers also have art historical references that don't exist in the figures, you know, so in a number of paintings, you've painted these kind of sunflowery looking things, but that have black centers rather than sunflower colored centers. And the petals are, you know, kind of Lee Mulligan style and, and they're taped off at the edges, like you, like you mentioned. And also they kind of exist in a vaguely symbolist way in your paintings, but not painted like Redon would paint them. I mean, it kind of seems to be the only place in the paintings the 19th century lives, the French 19th century lives. But another thing you do with the flowers and the vases almost always is that they are the thing within each canvas that is the most pinned down, that is the most defined and confined to a specific space. They end at the edges of the edges. Does that do something for you formally? Is that a reference that goes, be or is that something that goes beyond the formal? Why are the flowers and vases so nailed in place when nothing else in the canvas is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I see them as, I guess, being sort of like in contrast to the figures and that something that's been that's been coming up more and more in studio visits has been this idea between of what it means to be a figure or like a human or a subject occupying space and what it means to be a subject that's occupied by space and I think a lot of what these pieces are trying to depict is being a subject that's occupied by space. So kind of being somebody that dissolves into the space around them and that experience. And so the spaces themselves that are articulated by these planes, which are clearly as clearly defined as the basis, except for the logic of the perspective and that's where they start to bend. So I guess the the vases and, and the flowers is really the, they're the only object. I mean, I guess you could say that if you were to read like the checkered pattern as a tablecloth, that is an object. But the vases are these sort of discrete objects that really have a more solid standing than the figures and, and can be something that can define the figures and sort of hold the figures in place because the figures themselves really, I mean, even just in the way that they're depicted, there's parts of them that are completely just washes or, or light brush strokes or just almost, almost on the edge of just not even being there. There's body parts that are just very minimally articulated. So I find that they need this sort of, solid anchor to sort of hold them together and hold the logic of them together or else they just would completely slip away into nothingness. Yeah. You push paint around the figures in all kinds of different ways on each painting. Sometimes they're pores. Sometimes it's thinned paint. Sometimes, you know, you're pushing paint down a leg. Sometimes there's this kind of Max Ernstian 
thing where you're maybe using a comb or maybe using a piece of glass on top of the paint. That's a guess. I don't know that for sure. And and the and the and the flowers, there's none of that. They're just they're there. And and I guess this is all a long way of asking why is it okay and sure looks pleasurable to push paint around a figure, whereas the same thing doesn't extend to a flower. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's really just because these paintings are ultimately about being in a human body and not about flowers at all. <laughs> so, so yeah, the flowers are really more of a, I mean, not a crutch, but they're, they're, they're really there to support the figure and to kind of be present in the picture as something that was a solid decision. Cause I think that it's, it's this sort of fine line when you're looking at a painting where you really, in order to get into the headspace of a piece, you really have to kind of trust the, the logic and the decision-making that went into the piece. So if I were to, I mean, there's a lot of things that kind of could easily fall apart, like the large areas of raw canvas and some of the areas of the figure that are very minimally applied with marks. And so I think in order for that to have the same weight and gravity as a part of the figure that's maybe more rendered or more modeled, that needs to have certain areas that were very clear and very much like a decision was made. And, and I find that the masked areas that usually are reserved for the planes or for the still life of the flowers, those are areas where there can be like a really solid decision that can let the figure become completely undone or unresolved in relation to it and have the entire picture plane read as a fully realized piece that the viewer can kind of fall into and then trust the the lack of substance in parts of the figure because there is such a substantially rendered base of flowers. It's exactly Matisse and opposite. You know, in Matisse, the figures are, 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 are more specific and the flowers, you know, from, from the Nice period forward are, are brushier and more abstract and, and you do the exact opposite thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. Christina Quarles, thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much for, for chatting with me. It was fun. This summer, visit the Guggenheim Museum in New York to see Giacometti, called Majestic by the New Yorker. Featuring nearly 200 sculptures, paintings, and drawings, the exhibition takes a close look at the art-making process of the Swiss artist Alberto Giacometti, known for his distinctive sculptures of the human form. Experience the show through September 12th, including on Tuesday nights when the museum is open until 9 p.m. Tickets at guggenheim.org slash Giacometti. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view at the Pulitzer through August 11th, Mona Hatoum, Terra Inferma, is the artist's first major solo exhibition in the United States in 20 years and comprises more than 30 sculptures and installations. Merging the languages of minimalism and surrealism filtered through a feminist lens, Hatoum subverts the familiar to offer nuanced perspectives on universal human questions. The exhibition has been organized by the Menil Collection Houston and is on view at the Pulitzer in St. Louis through August 11, 2018. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Eve Loris Cohen, Meeting Ground, at its downtown location from April 19th through September 2nd. 
For Laris Cohen's first solo museum presentation on the West Coast, the artist takes as his starting point MCASD La Jolla's current expansion, a construction endeavor involving the conversion of Sherwood Auditorium into a multi-purpose gallery. On the occasion of Sherwood's disappearance, the artist has engaged in an excavation of the history of the auditorium, and, in turn, of the museum itself. For more information, visit www.mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Morgan Library curator Joel Smith, who joins me to discuss his Peter Hujar, Speed of Life. Smith and I talked when the show debuted at the Morgan Library in New York earlier this year. It's now at the Berkeley Art Museum through November 18th. It includes 140 pictures and looks at Hujar's entire career. The exhibition catalog, which was published by Aperture, is easily the most important publication about Hujar. Amazon offers it for $34. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Joel Smith, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. The first Peter Hujar image in your catalog and the first one in your show is a picture of Hujar jumping. It's a self-portrait. He made a number of these in which he's first nude and running or jumping and later, as in this picture, clothed, running and jumping. Why did he make them and why did he keep on making them? One thing Hujar didn't do a lot of is explaining. And he, for one thing, he never had the opportunity or requirement to explain his work to anybody. And for another, I think he wanted the work to speak for itself. But when you see him playing, I think part of the answer is that he really was playful. And in the catalog, I link this image of him not only jumping, but kicking a foot back and saluting the camera to the portrait that he had made almost 20 years earlier of his high school English teacher, Daisy Alden, the most important adult in his young life, who's raising a finger and somehow admonishing or questioning her own words with a lovely smile on her face. Uh, I think the two of them shared a sense of humor about self-presentation that we don't have a lot of direct clues about, but I feel some of that same play going on in this picture and other images in which he's sort of making a not exactly a joke, but a game of the process of self-presentation. I wanted to start with that picture rather than with Ujar himself, because it's such a distinct starting point for a show. And if we go back to the nude jumping picture, is kind of a distinct starting point for a, a career in a way. But let's go back to the beginning of the show as, as concept, the show as something you have done. Why did it take so long for a Peter Hujar show to get done, and why did you want to do it? Hujar, in his lifetime, was good at working against his own interests. He had very high ambitions for how his work should be seen and could be difficult with those who were in a position to help him out. And since Hujar's time, that's been one of many historical impediments that people have try tried to overcome. The state was carried by one gallery after another. And I remember myself as a fellow at a museum in New York in the 1990s being present when a box of his prints was delivered for the inspection of the curators. And at that time, the response of those in the department was, I think, typical of the way that he was seen, which was carefully looking through every print in the box and concluding, well, this is what we've seen. 
Maplethorpe do all right, but what else is there? What, what was being shown was his portraits, and the portraits looked the most like a retread of something that people had seen before, which was a sort of chronicle of life on the Lower East Side. And it was hard to individuate and see what was so distinct about Hujar as long as that perfectly shaped obstacle was, was in the way. It was a, it's a historical case of one reputation occluding another. And as time has passed, I think it's become easier for a variety of reasons to see what was so distinct about Hujar's photography. You mentioned Maplethorpe a moment ago in your catalog essay. You noted that in Hujar's own time, he was kind of stuck betwixt Deanne Arbus and Maplethorpe. And you recount a great story about how how Arbus herself seemed to not- notice that and made sure Hujar knew about it. <laughs> yes, at, a, at the uh, workshop in 1967 that he took with uh, Avedon and Marvin Israel, Hujar introduced himself to the visiting artist who that evening happened to be Deanne Arbus. She had just opened the show at MoMA the night before with Gary Winogrand and Lee Friedlander, and she was the star of that show. So she must have felt on top of the world. And when Hujar introduced himself at the end, she said, I know who you are. And this is the story that he told to David Wanarovich some 17 years later. And it's hard to know what exactly she meant by that and to what extent the story had grown in his mind in the meantime. <laughs> but what he understood was I need to back off from somebody who perhaps had been a really important influence in the, in the previous couple of years and uh, do something different. I guess another of the things Arbus had noticed was that Hujar liked to leave the black border around his prints, which for her was something of a signature. I guess it was. And Hujar pretty plausibly suggests that he and a lot of other people thought of it at the same time. And he just just describes it as a 60s kind of design thing. He said a a photograph looked good with a black border around it. In Arbus, we read it as a sign of honesty that you're seeing the entire frame and it's characteristic of Hujar that he really saw it in terms of an aesthetic issue. Today, when we think of Hujar, we think of the portraits first, I think. What makes them stand out? What makes them good? What, what, what in them do you keep noticing? I see the same thing in, in Hujar's portraits as in the rest of the work, which is just the, to put it simply, the optical fascination with something being itself, <laughs> to, to understand that there's a surface in front of you, which is all that the camera can pick up. And you're limited as a photographer to the light coming in the front of the apparatus. But you know, as a image maker, that there's a mystery there, that there's something more. And Hujar is fascinated with surfaces and with capturing down to the darkest shadows, the detail of what's going on in front of the camera. But on another dimension, that of time, you have a sense of things being slowed down, of somebody having had time to arrange themselves or to get lost in their own reverie and, in a sense, to forget that he's in front of them. They're, they're alone with the camera, I think, is the psychological conceit of a lot of Hujar's pictures. And that quality is something that, that really naturally translates into some of the other kinds of image, photographs of buildings or still lifes or cityscapes. In a portrait, it can be a little unsettling, and there can even be a sense of gravity or of self-indulgence, I guess, on the part of the, of the sitters. But when you spend time with one picture after another, 
it really comes through as a, a characteristic worldview is kind of the only way I can describe it. It's not to do with confrontation and it's not to do with idealization. It has to do with appreciating the specificity, the singularity of whatever it is he's looking at. I think my favorite might be the portrait of Isaac Hayes. Do you have a favorite or one that you think is a particular, or maybe a, a portrait of a human <laughs> that you think is a particularly good example? We'll get to the others in a moment. <laughs> the first photograph of Hughes that I ever acquired for an institution was a portrait of Lavinia Co-op, a performer with the Blue Lips troupe, who were performing at a theater nearby Hughes loft. He seemed to spend a couple of hours with them. I mean, we see from the contact sheets that he's photographing the whole group. He's photographing individual members of it. And on some people, he spends a couple of roles. But on Lavinia, he made only about four exposures and seemed to realize right away that he had got what he needed. And it's the most striking picture of the bunch by far to me. Lavinia has in the picture a very masculine face. You can see his hand, which he's leaning his uh, chin on, but on top of his head, which is angled in this quizzical sort of way, there's a ponytail that doesn't quite read as a woman's ponytail or as something left over from a long-haired hippie face or anything of the sort. It just seems to be its own puzzle for the camera. I dare you to make sense of the way that I am. And that really stuck with me. And it was, to me, a kind of uh, challenge for making sense of just what the portraitist was doing in, in addressing somebody with such a distinctive individual manner. There are also at least a dozen, uh, I'm going to use the word portraits, portraits of animals in the show. Cows, snakes, several snakes. Are they portraits? And why do you think Hujar was so interested in them? The, 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 first, the first and, and in a way, I think, very important animal portrait that he made and that's, that's in the, the show is a picture of a horse on a hilltop in West Virginia. Uh, he was on a road trip with a couple of friends in 1969 and made that picture. And it's a few years before he really begins to concentrate on, on animals as a subject. And he clearly needed to spend a little bit of time. He tries to, he, he goes to a complete profile view of the horse. So it's like a child's idea of a drawing of a horse. Here's the legs, here's the tail and the, and the head. But there's a real sincere and thoughtful quality <laughs> to this horse that persuades you that the horse, like the human subjects in Hujar's photography, has slowed down and acknowledged what's going on and that it's somehow being regarded by somebody who's trying to make sense of it. You look even closer and you can see the flies on the flanks of this horse. The hilltops in the background lend a beautiful sort of sense of atmosphere to it. And you can see that you're addressing this individual in its environment. And those who watched him photographing animals said that he would just speak to them in a conversational tone, exactly as if he was talking to a person, not baby talk, not animal talk, but just a constant patter that I think probably served to let them understand that he didn't find anything remarkable about being there, just a couple of feet away from them and photographing. And I, I think there's everything in those pictures that we have in a human portrait, except for the human part of being a human being. They are definitely live creatures and intelligent 
creatures, but it's just not an intelligence that we can quite get to. And the suggestion to me is that the same thing might be true of human portraits, that we're projecting onto them the understanding and the meaning that we read inside them. Have you found there to be interesting or meaningful differences between his portraits of clothed figures and his portraits of nudes? I'm talking about humans here. Ha ha. <laughs> the, the analogy that's helped me the most for thinking about all of Hujar's photographs of people is therapy. He was in therapy from the time he was in high school in the early 1950s until the end of his life. And we know that it was important to him and that he valued it in part because he thanked his therapist in the one book that he published, uh, Portraits in Life and Death. Uh, his his uh, therapist was among the four people that he, that he thanked specifically. And people describe sitting for him being this process of indeterminate length. You might be there for 10 minutes or you might be there for four and a half hours. And he would remain silent, change film, perhaps adjust lights, but really give people time to come out of who they were and become something different than what they present in public all the time at their own pace and in their own manner. Gary Schneider, who posed nude for him for two pictures called Gary Schneider in Contortion uh, that are side by side in the exhibition, um, said that he really got no guidance from Hujar at all. And I think it's quite typical. And so the difference between a nude and somebody clothed is just a difference in the conditions that he's setting as a therapist, so to speak, what it is he's laying as a challenge for how to be in front of the camera. You note in your essay that Hujar didn't make a lot of political or socio-political work, but one such picture he did make in 1969 is famously, and in the context of the time, confrontationally exuberant. What is it, and how did he come to make it? This is a photograph of members of the Gay Liberation Front uh, running towards him in the middle of 19th Street in October of 1969. The Stonewall uprising had occurred at the end of June, and Hujar was there along with his boyfriend at the time, Jim Forat, on the second night of the confrontation with the police. Forat was organizing for the Gay Liberation Front, which is the first group to cite homosexuality in its name as its political reason for being. This very much on the model of anti-war and civil rights groups. And Forat asked Hujar to make a photograph that could work for a recruitment poster for the Gay Liberation Front. And that fall, they got a group of people together to make the picture. And it was the poster was produced with the slogan come out and join the sisters and brothers of the gay liberation front uh, in time for the next year's gay liberation march the first of those in 1970 uh, on the anniversary of stonewall unfortunately as i learned in the course of producing the show most of the copies of that poster were stolen from the car the the trunk of john erdman who had been tasked with posting it around town. Uh, some of them went up on walls, but it's as rare a piece of ephemera as it is because most of the copies no longer existed. But that's the, the one time that uh, Hujar made a work with a very specific political purpose. 
we'll have it on manpodcast.com, but listeners may recall it as one of the covers, maybe the only cover for Martin Duberman's book, Stonewall, his history of, of, of the thing, the place, the time. I could ask about the uh, David Wanarovich pictures, but I think those get talked about and, and shown a lot. The Susan Sontag portrait that Hujar made is probably the most famous picture he made. I don't know much of anything about how it came to be. How did it come to be? And was it part of his book project, of Hujar's book project? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it's the, the, the portrait of Sontag is one of a number that Hujar made in a batch in 1975 when he knew that he was going to be producing a book, uh, which became Portraits in Life and Death. And he jotted down in his job book the people that he was photographing. It begins, she's not on the very first page of the book, but she's within the first, the first couple of pages. And this is at a time when Hujar was sometimes photographing people in his loft, which, which served as his studio, and sometimes in their own homes. And Sontag, he photographed in her home. So she's lying on her own bed. The roles of film that include those pictures uh, on the bed also include her in her office with German Shepherd and uh, in an office chair and on a rooftop wearing a fleece jacket. But the, the pictures on the bed are the ones where you can see her really relaxing into the role as subject of his camera and really kind of enacting the part of somebody who ponders, somebody who lies back and thinks uh, and composes herself as a contemplator. Finally, you mentioned at the beginning of our chat that that you worked at Princeton. At, at Princeton is home to the Minor White Archive. White and Hujar kind of represent almost opposite spectrums of the American gay experience. I mean, both were photographers, both, both worked in black and white, but they're, they're a generation, maybe almost two full generations apart. Did you find yourself thinking about one in terms of the other or about the two of them in any particular ways? Minor White works his way through a variety of different metaphors that allow him to deal, to oversimplify it a bit, with his sexuality as a subject of photography. Abstraction is one. Sequential photography is another way that he can see the nuance in things and present the world as this complex series of pondered and metaphorical subjects. Uh, a frozen waterfall isn't just a frozen bunch of water. It has to do with an impediment to flow of some, some kind, uh, so to speak. And Hujar, leaving home at 16 and setting up his apartment in the midst of Greenwich Village, was really choosing a life where there was no need for metaphor. He didn't have to uh, ever be in a closet. People said that he did not present as a homosexual, and it happened more than once in his life that he was mistaken for straight by women who thought he might be boyfriend material. And that's true of other artists in his circle uh, as well. Professionally, he worked the way that he did. It was not necessary in the fashion industry or later as a portraitist on the Lower East Side for Hujar to pretend he was anything he was not. And coming out of the role of a fashion photographer and into the role of a chronicler of a gay subculture was not 
that big uh, a leap. That I think is the is the biggest difference is that Hujar was kind of born to the situation that that Minor White could never quite find his way to. Their portraits couldn't be more different. Minor Whites are so inward looking, and Hujars are so right there on the surface and often celebrate surfaces such as the feathers uh, in what, uh, say, Isaac Hayes is wearing. They're really different, different men. Joel Smith, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.